Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Patty Imperwani from the Austin Tasha's Nordweg uh, Life Group. And today I'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And it reads as follows. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Won't you bow your heads and I'll just commit this time to prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, we um, are so grateful for the gift of a Sunday. Uh, there are no ordinary Sundays. We have come for an audience with the King. Uh, we come trusting only in your grace, your mercy to us, your goodness to us. And we pray that you will allow us to be with you, to commune with you, to see you through our Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of his Spirit. And we pray that we'd leave here changed people uh, for your glory, your honor, and our good. Amen. If I said to you that I long for us to be a spirit-filled church, what would you think? You might think I wanted to change the style of music. You might think I wanted uh, for us to change what we do with our hands when we sing. Uh, you might be thinking he wants us to become more like Rhema or like Acts or like New Frontiers. He wants us to speak in tongues. He wants us to prophesy. Uh, maybe he's hoping for the gift of healing himself. Uh, maybe he wants us to start calling him Apostle. If that's more or less what you're thinking, then when I say I want us to be a spirit-filled church, half of you are going to be celebrating. Hallelujah. At last. A little bit of action. Can't take another week of the frozen chosen. The other half are looking for the nearest exit. Can I suggest to you that both of those reactions have a lot to do with personal temperament and very little to do with what it means to be a spiritful church? In fact, that sort of reaction just says we've lost sight of what it means to be a spiritful church. So what is a spiritual church? First of all, when we have to say this, it's any church worthy of the name church. You cannot be a church of Jesus Christ in the true sense without the presence of his spirit, without the activity of his spirit, the ongoing work of his spirit. Remember, and this has been our key theme throughout our series in Acts, don't ever lose sight of the fact that the church is an act of God including God the Holy Spirit. But what does it look like to be a spirit-filled church? What does that actually look like? A church that 
is not denying the presence of the Spirit. A church that is walking in step with the Spirit. A church that is being used of the Spirit. What does that actually look like? It looks like Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. What we have in our passage is a portrait of the first Spirit-filled church. Pentecost has come. The Father and the Son have poured out the gift of the Spirit, and the Spirit has formed and filled this new community. You remember, 3,000 were saved on one day, and now they comprise this new community of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father. What did that look like? Chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, gives us a little window, a little snapshot in time. In this passage, there are, broadly speaking, three marks of a spiritful church, at least these three marks. The spiritual church is devoted to God, devoted to one another, and devoted to the world outside. Devoted to God, devoted to one another, devoted to the world outside. And because there's so much confusion around what it means to be a spiritual church, we need to have a close look. And we start with devotion to God. The spiritual church is devoted to God. The first spiritual church wanted to know, desperately wanted to know the Father through the Son. That's why they were devoted to the apostolic teaching. The teaching of the apostles. You remember, the apostles were eyewitnesses to the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what they taught. They taught Jesus his life and teaching, his death and resurrection, his ascension. And they didn't just teach those things as bare facts, neutral facts. No, these are facts that lay a claim on your life. They taught the Lord Jesus as he presented himself, the great Savior King, who is to be trusted and obeyed. Devotion to the teaching of the apostles was devotion to the Father through the Son. And the same is true today. The first mark of a spirit-filled church will be devotion to God, seen in devotion to His Word. The Word is the witness of the, of the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit. Sometimes you can get the impression that a spirit-filled church doesn't need the Bible. Because it has the Spirit. On the contrary, it is precisely because we are truly a Pentecostal church that we take the Bible so seriously. The church that was the first fruit of Pentecost, that very first Pentecostal church, the church that emerged out of that first Pentecost, devoted themselves to the apostolic teaching. And so should we. It's the same Spirit who has been poured out. Now, where do you find that teaching? You find it in the Bible. The apostles themselves, who were the eyewitnesses, died 2,000 years ago. The Bible is the only place we can access their eyewitness teaching. The Spirit moves the church in devotion to God through His Word. And we want to stay in step with the Spirit. 
Thanks be to God, the Bible has always been at the center of who we are at Christchurch Midrand. Because the Bible, not because we're great, because the Bible witnesses to King Jesus. And therefore the Bible's at the center. And as long as I'm here, as long as I'm in my right mind, the Bible will stay at the center. The very center of who we are. Right at the center. A second evidence of spirit-filled devotion to God is, of course, prayer. We see it in our passage. If the Bible is listening to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit, then prayer is speaking to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. And both are absolutely essential to life in any local church. Remember, one is breathing in and the other is breathing out. Prayer is also one of the most accurate measures of our devotion to God. It's one of the most accurate measures of the movement of the Spirit in our midst. Now that might be a surprising thing to hear. If you wanted to measure the presence of the Spirit, the prayer ministry might seem an unlikely place to start. It's not exactly a flashy gift, prayer. It's not a power, what you might call a power ministry. There is no religious mileage in private prayer. None. What I mean is no one can see you. No one knows about it. No one knows it's happening. You don't get any religious standing in this community through private prayer. Public prayer is, of course, a little bit different. It is a little bit more prone to abuse. It's easier to make a show of godliness in front of other people in public prayer But if you are not the person who's up front at a prayer meeting, if you are just there to pray in the quiet of your heart or in a small group, then once again, even in public prayer, there's very little religious mileage or social capital involved. There are just much better ways to advance your status in the community than prayer. That's just how it is. And so where there is commitment to prayer it's much more likely to be a work of the Spirit in devotion to the Father through the Son because as we've been saying, humanly speaking, there's nothing else to gain. I also think prayer is an important measure of devotion to God because heartfelt prayer is a deep expression of our dependence on Him. When we pray sincerely and not to impress others, dependence on God is why we pray. There's just no other motivation. We pray because we need Him. We pray because we desperately want Him in our lives. That's true devotion. That's true devotion. Once again, thanks be to God, we have some wonderful prayer warriors here at Christ Church Midrand. Some people who are absolutely dedicated to prayer. Now here's the strange thing. Unless you are one of them, unless you are actually on the prayer chain itself, yourself, you will have no idea who they are. Am I right? Name three people on the prayer chain. Funny, isn't that? So why do they do it? There's no acclaim. There's no glamour. No one even notices. Perhaps some of you didn't know there was a prayer chain. Why do they do it? They do it because the Spirit of God is using them to move us in devotion to the Father 
through the Son. Are you a part of the prayer life of our local church? Are you a part of the prayer life here? If not, it may just be that you are resisting the Spirit and you're starving yourself of air in the process. You're holding your breath. The early church was devoted to the apostolic teaching. They were devoted to prayer. There's more evidence of their devotion to God in their emotional life. They were a community gripped by awe and joy. Verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 46, Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, with joy. Awe and joy in the same community at the same time. It's kind of a strange mix. We start with awe. Awe came upon every soul because of the signs and wonders being done through the apostles. Now remember, Jesus did signs and wonders during his own ministry. What were they for? What was the point of the miracles? Well, we bumped into it just a few weeks ago. Acts chapter 2 verse 22, you read this. Chapter 2 verse 22, if you want to have a look. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. How? With mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. What is the point of the wondrous signs? They were pointing to Jesus Christ as the truth. The truth in the flesh. The truth in himself. By the end of, the, of his public ministry, he was proclaiming, only by the end, but by the end he was proclaiming publicly to be the Son of God. And the signs and wonders were there to validate that claim. He was attested, he was accredited, he was validated by the miracles. He was vindicated by the miracle of his resurrection, proved to be true in every sense of the word. In Acts, what we find is that same Jesus, now risen and ascended and commanding all authority in heaven and on earth, continuing to work wondrous signs, only this time through the apostles. And so, of course, the power is not in the apostles themselves. The power is from Jesus who works through the apostles. The miracles are not an end in themselves. They proclaim the Father's approval of the Son and His apostles. They shout to us loud and clear, the church is from God. The church is an act of God. Now just imagine you living in Jerusalem at that time. It is only natural in that sort of environment that all Fear came upon every soul. The signs and the wonders were reminding them of the immediate presence of the consuming fire that is God Almighty. I would say that godly fear was a right response. But so was joy. Joy because the consuming fire exercises his limitless 
dangerous power in love. He provides for the everyday needs of his people like a father provides for the needs of his children, his beloved children. He gave them their daily bread and they received it with joy. This is a strange mix, joy and fear. Fear and joy. To try and understand it, let me, let me use an illustration from everyday life that I think holds the two together. Think about that relationship, the relationship of joy and fear in the life of a fisherman and how the fisherman relates to the ocean. Does a fisherman fear the ocean? I think there's probably nobody with a healthier fear for the ocean than your average fisherman because your average beach bum knows absolutely nothing about what the ocean is capable of. The land lovers, Gauteng is like you and me. We know nothing. We have no clue what the ocean is capable of. But the fisherman has seen the ocean in all of its raw, ferocious, naked, terrifying power. And that comes with a healthy fear. But the fisherman also loves the ocean at the very same time. The ocean is his first love. The ocean is the food on his table. In many ways, the ocean is his life. And so while he has a healthy fear for the ocean, it is completely natural for him to rejoice in the ocean at the same time. It's a little bit like that when it comes to us and God. Only orders of magnitude, greater intensity. Our fear of the Lord and our joy in the Lord can and should go hand in hand. And when they do, it will be evidence of our spirit-filled devotion to God. In the words of Psalm 31, listen to this. Listen to this strange mix. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Do you hear that? The one who fears God is the same one who takes refuge in God. In this life, God is the one scary thing that you run towards. Everything else we fear, we run away from. But God is the object of our fear and the place of our refuge, our safety at the same time. And so to fear him is to run towards him. Because he has nothing but abundant goodness stored up for those who fear him. Joy and awe go together in the spirit-filled community. And together they overflow in praise. Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, Praising God. Praising God. They praised God in the formal public setting that was the temple. They praised God in the private informality of their own homes. And both are appropriate in the spiritual church. This is how one pastor puts it. God had visited their city. He was in their midst and they knew it. 
They bowed down before him in humility and wonder. It is a mistake to imagine that in public worship, reverence and rejoicing are mutually exclusive. That combination of joy and awe, that combination of formality and informality, is a healthy balance in worship. That combination is evidence of devotion to God in a spiritful church. Is that us? Are we taking every opportunity, public, private, formal, informal, are we taking every possible opportunity in every available setting to praise God? Out of joyful awe and fearful joy. That's what our Sunday gatherings are for. That's what our midweek life group gatherings are for. Life groups are more informal, Sundays are more formal, both are appropriate and healthy. Now, we normally decide that question, formal versus informal, based once again on our temperament, on our own personal preferences. But in a healthy, spiritual church, you're going to have both. You're going to have both. And the air of those gatherings, whether formal or informal, will be filled with this mix of fear and joy. Because in a spiritual church, we recognize the presence of the consuming fire in our midst when we gather. And we run towards him in joy. His praise will always be on our lips if the Spirit is moving amongst us. A spiritful church will be devoted to God through devotion to his word, to prayer, to praise, all in an air of joyful fear or fearful joy. In a spiritual church will also be Devoted to one another. This is the second mark of a spiritual church. Verse 2. And they devoted, to, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Now what is the fellowship? What is this fellowship? Well, in the first place, it's a unity based on our common share in God himself. The, the teaching of the apostle John to which we are devoted, is that our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So our share in each other comes through our share in the Father and His Son. The fellowship that we have with the Father and the Son in the Spirit overflows into a fellowship that we have, an unbreakable fellowship that we have with each other. We have a common share in each other. You have shares in me. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. I have shares in you. The share we have in each other expresses itself in very practical ways. This is not some airy-fairy mystical doctrine. This is concrete. Listen. Verse 44. All who believed and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I hope it's obvious that in the spiritual church, the approach to material things is neither capitalist nor communist nor some compromise between the two. It is another thing entirely. It's its own thing. It stands all alone. This gospel-shaped community. 
This is not capitalism. Capitalism says, get everything you can, can what you get, and sit on your can. That's capitalism. Capitalism says, take, take care of number one, and if there's anything left over, share the change. But look at the early church. They were selling their possessions. Now, we think of giving in terms of a percentage of our income, right? A share of our salary. We're normally 10%. That's the rule of thumb. And the capitalist ethic says you never, ever eat into capital. You never eat into your savings. That's dangerous. If you have to tithe, keep your tithing on the income statement. Look at the early church. This is radical balance sheet giving. This wasn't just about a percentage of their salary. They were selling their assets. They were liquidating their assets to share with the community. This is just not capitalism. It isn't. But it's not communism either. In communism, you replace an economic elite with a political elite. And then you dissolve all private property rights by force. And you place the wealth of the community in the hands of the political elite. And they decide what happens. But look at the early church. No one is forced to give up anything. No one is coerced. Private property rights are still very much in place. This spiritful church recognized that you cannot legislate for the human heart. You cannot coerce the human heart. You can coerce behavior, but you cannot coerce the heart. The only thing compelling these people, these disciples of our Lord Jesus to give, was their devotion to God and their devotion to one another. They voluntarily gave up their property rights. They were compelled by love. God's love for them in Christ spilling over into their love for one another. That's what compelled them. And it compelled them into radical balance sheet giving. Thanks be to God we have seen so many examples of this kind of thing in our midst, motivated by the Spirit over the years at Christchurch Midrand. I mean, a number of people have donated cars to the ministry. Uh, if you know anything about Bishop Martin's driving, you will know that it was an answer to many an all-night prayer vigil that moved him out of the death trap that was that White City Gulf into something equally as small, but also with an airbag. That's where one of the vehicles went. Other vehicles have been used for pastoral visitation, for student ministry. Radical acts of balance sheet giving. He has an asset. People have given enormous monetary gifts, enormous monetary gifts that must have involved the liquidating of some asset or some savings account or some investment portfolio. Massive investments. Someone has pledged a significant portion of the value of his very successful business to our mercy ministry, to the Love Trust. God's people respond in the most amazing ways to needs in our community. The most amazing ways. People have offered up a room in their home just to help someone get by for a season. People have paid for medical bills or school fees or electricity. 
There are just so, so many examples. I'm, I'll give you one recent example. One of the members of our family was in a very serious car accident. It happened on the Thursday. He was in hospital for the whole of the weekend. Come Monday morning, two members of his life group, now this is a, a working Monday, two members of his life group must have taken time off work. They drove the 300 kilometers to fetch him, and I think members of his family as well, turned around and drove the 300 kilometers back just to get him back to Joburg, all at their own expense. Expense, time, energy, financial investment, moved by the Spirit. Prompted by the Spirit. A Spirit-filled church is devoted to God and devoted to one another. And thirdly, a Spirit-filled church is devoted to the world. As the early church gave themselves to the apostolic teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, as they sold off their assets to meet each other's needs, as they praised God in their homes and in the temple with an attitude of joyful fear, as they did all of this, they did it in plain sight of the wider community. They did it in plain sight of their neighbors who were looking in at this strange thing. And what happened? It's there in verse 47. They won the favor of the people. The people outside looked in and saw this is good. Whatever this is, something good is happening here. They won the favor of the people. And so, verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, as a local church, we can make, and local churches make these mistakes all the time, we can make two mistakes when it comes to the world outside. We can either become a cult, or we can become the culture. Either a cult or the culture. We can retreat into our holy huddle, circle the wagons, and only ever look over the wall to shout angry judgment at our neighbors. That's one option. Become a cult. The opposite error is to become the culture. Under the guise of being seeker-sensitive and reaching out to our culture, we just capitulate and we become the culture. We're not distinctive in any way, shape, or form. We, we call it missional, but it's just a mask for our embarrassment and our awkwardness at being disciples of Jesus Christ. It's just a mask for our deep desire to fit in, to come across as normal, even cool. It's a mask for the fear of man rather than the fear of God. The spirit-filled community is neither cult nor is it the culture. It is so authentically and unashamedly itself that it is attractive to those outside. They look in and they say, you know what, these people know who they are. These people have a confidence in their identity. And because that identity is in Christ, it is an identity, identity that is naturally friendly to sinners. Because he was the great friend to sinners. It is naturally friendly to sinners. It is naturally friendly to the world outside. Remembering that we were all once outside. I remember when I first came to this church, just how striking the friendliness of the place was. It, both the physical environment, the aesthetic of it, if you like, just 
just a warmth, but also the people, and especially the people. It was like a, it was like a warm hug, and it prepared me to sit down and receive teaching that was devoted to the apostolic witness. That's what we are trying to do all the time. And it's for all of us. It's not just for the hospitality team. I hope if a newcomer comes and sits next to you, they walk away feeling like they've just had a warm hug. I hope that's the case. We are trying to extend the authentically Christian hand of friendship to the world outside. We're not trying to be the world outside. We're trying to extend the authentically Christian hand of friendship to the world outside all the time. And one obvious example is the Care and Crisis Center. That center exists as a bridge of love and friendship into our wider community. It's why it exists. We are hoping that many will make the return journey across that bridge into the family here. And that the Lord will add daily to the number of those who are being saved. That's our great hope. A spirit-filled church is devoted to God, devoted to one another, and devoted to the world. Another way to say it is that the spirit-filled church is a redeemed family of servants on mission. To the extent that we are filled with the spirit of Christ, we will increasingly become who we are in Christ, a redeemed family of servants on mission. The whole way through this sermon, I've been giving you examples of where I have seen the movement of the Spirit in our midst. Now, please don't mishear me. That was not intended as a pat on the back for us. It's quite to the contrary, actually. I mentioned those things so that we can hear the challenge of this passage without being crushed by discouragement. Because this... This passage is a serious challenge, isn't it? I mean, it just takes one superficial reading to realize we are not there. We are consumers, born and bred. It's just the air we breathe, and we bring that into the church. We arrive at church as consumers. We come to the church with the, what do I get out of this attitude that we take everywhere? The church is essentially a service provided to us. I pay my monthly subscription. If I'm not happy with what I get, I vote with my feet and I go to the competition. That's just another planet from Acts chapter 2, isn't it? This is worlds apart from Acts chapter 2. And sadly, because it's the air we breathe in our culture, it is so attractive to us in our weaker moments. It is our default setting. And so I want to appeal to you this morning to read our passage. Read it and reread it. Test yourself. If you feel off balance, if you feel uncomfortable, if you find yourself starting to self-justify, in that moment, no, it does look bad on the surface of it, but actually these are the reasons I don't, in that moment, stop. Stop. You cannot justify yourself. Only the Lord Jesus can justify you. Only he can make you right with God. 
And so if you are feeling your conscience prick, that is the work of the Spirit. That is the Spirit taking the initiative to pick you up and dust you off and to get you back in step with Him so that you can be used of Him. So take your guilt, and I'll take mine. Take your guilt to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Spirit, and ask Him to help you to be better. Ask Him to help us as a church to be better, because this is not just about your life or mine. That's consumer thinking. This is about the life of the redeemed family. And then once you've taken it to Him in prayer, then act. That is the surest demonstration of faith. Action. Be the change you want to see in the church. You know, sometimes on staff, people will come to us and say, you know, the church really should be doing this, or the church really needs to attend to that. We are the church, brothers and sisters. We are the church. If you want to see change in the church, be the change you want to see in the church. By all means, communicate it so we can go with you on the journey, but be that change. Sell an asset to meet a need. Read your Bible. Spend an hour in prayer for someone else. Share the gospel. Encourage those around you to do the same. If you like what you read in Acts chapter 2, if you find it attractive, if you want to share in that sort of community, one of the most practical things you can do is join a life group. I can't, we say this repeatedly, join a life group. You are simply not going to taste what you taste in Acts chapter 2 in its fullness here on a Sunday. We're just too big and anonymous. You must join a life group. And to those of you who are already in life groups, we are going to take the challenge of this passage seriously. We're suspending our normal program for this week. We are going to prayerfully hear the challenge of this text. We're going to work through the passage listening for that challenge, listening for the Lord's challenge. And then we're going to spend time in prayer asking the Spirit to fill us and move us in the direction He wants to take us. I'm going to do that for all of us now. Why don't you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we long, we hunger and thirst to be filled with the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for the Spirit's work in our midst, the work we see all around us. We long for more. We long to be truly and fully devoted to you, truly and fully devoted to each other, truly and fully devoted to the world outside. Spirit of God, be our helper and our guide. Move us by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and fill us with his holy presence. In his name we pray. Amen.